0: all-consuming in their thinking. In other words, a better day is coming. The trials are a present reality, yes, but there's a deadline attached to them. They will not be forever. Sam Cooke wrote a, uh, a song years ago with regard to the racist problems in America. And this song was entitled, Change is Gonna Come. And the whole song is about, It's not here yet, but it's gonna come. Well, change is gonna come for us as well in the spiritual realm. God is not punishing us, He has not forgotten His gift. Of new life and salvation. Nothing in the heavens is shaken. Because of what is occurring in your life. Right now on earth. As we read last week. Your inheritance. Your final salvation. Can never perish, spoil or fade. Because it's kept. In heaven for you. And shielded by God's power. Verse 4 and 5 of our text. Kept and shielded. Wow. Wow. That being so, we have to look at trials, I think, through those lenses to see the final outcomes. And this knowledge of outcomes tempers how we respond to the present trials. Or at least it should. How so? Well, for one thing, if we know what the future is going to bring... If if you know how the story's going to end, let's put it that way. If you know how the story's going to end, we do not accuse God of abandoning us, or of not loving us, or of giving us over to the enemies of our souls. No, instead we greatly rejoice, as Peter, by staying focused on the salvation to come. Have you never gotten through bad times by fixing your focus on future spiritual blessings? If life consisted only of the temporal world and the physical comforts it affords, then yes, we might be overcome with sorrow, grief, and hopelessness. But Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8:18. 8, you have to be realistic. Again, he says, he speaks of our light, get this now, and momentary troubles and he says, they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on the unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. So it's a matter of one's perspective, isn't it? If we get so absorbed in this life and the things we're going through in this life that we lose the vision of where we're headed and what's being accomplished for us through the work of Jesus, then we will be frustrated, we will be overwhelmed, we will be discouraged, perhaps even go into despair, which is a terrible place to be. Now, secondly, Peter says that our present trials now are only, these are his words, they're only for a little while. A little while. Verse 6. The Bible affirms again and again that all the trials which come into believers' lives have a termination date attached to them. Now, we don't necessarily think that way when we're going through the trial. We just wish to God they were over, and the sooner the better. But guess what? The Bible affirms that the trials we endure do have a termination date attached to them. Listen to David. He says, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Or again, Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. Or from the words of Jesus, New Testament. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman given birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. John 16. Verse 20 and following. Even if you think that some of the things you are experiencing have to do with God spanking you for disobedience, listen to Hosea's confidence about sinful, yes, I'll say it again sinful Israel. And Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. That we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As Surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3. Now there's a rational concept of how God functions. Yes, we might be hurting today, and it might be sorrowful, but as we return to the Lord, He who has injured us and wounded us will heal us and restore us. God himself assures us. These are his words. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 54, verse 7 and 8. Pretty sad affair sometimes when we read about parents that are so estranged from their children that a breach has been made that doesn't seem to ever heal. Sometimes we read about this in the newspapers, or we have it in our own families as well. Parents being estranged from their children, not speaking to them, not having holidays together, not sharing birthdays anymore, just mean-spirited breach of love and compassion. But don't bring that scenario into our family relationship with God. Yes, he may discipline us, he may spank us, but it's temporary. It's just for a little while. And Peter uses this expression, a little while, verse 6. By the way, he uses it again in chapter 5, verse 10. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 through 11. Whatever we're going through, it's just a little while. And here I think Peter introduces another element into the mix namely that Satan and the Satan as in the case of job for example may be behind the trials that you experience but he uses this expression a little while so I ask the question how long is a little while that's what we all want to know In fact, you have some prayers in the Bible where the psalmists say, How long, O Lord, how long? Right? You've read those. What are they doing? They're saying, you know, I'm looking at my watch. I'm looking at the calendar. And this has been going on and on. And I'm wondering, you know, is there ever a time when this is going to end? Things are going to change. How long? How long? Well, how long is a little while? Well, the original word, and this is a word, and this is interesting, is oligas in Greek. You've heard of an oligarchy? That's a government in which a small group is in control of the government. We never want that in America. Sometimes people object to that whole idea oligos always means insignificant different nouns it takes on various nuances of meaning for example if you attach oligos to time then it means short a little while if you attach it to the word to the noun speech it means brief. Gonna have a brief. If you attach it to numbers, it means few. If you attach it to the degree of intensity, it means slight. If you attach it to a material object, it means small. So it depends on where the word is being used. Any way you slice it, When Peter admits that his readers are suffering grief in all kinds of trials for a little while, he is saying that their trials compared to life, compared to eternity, are short-lived. There is no lasting duration to them. Even Job's suffering, which is rehearsed in 42 chapters, Move very swiftly. We read in chapter 1 that in one day, one day, he lost all of his children when a mighty wind collapsed the house that they were in. He lost all of his camels, thousands, in a Chaldean raid. He lost all of his sheep by a fire from heaven. He lost all of his oxen and donkeys to the Sabian marauders, and the slaughter of all of his servants except a few who reported the losses. He went from millionaire to pauper in one day. One day. And in the next day, he went from strong, healthy body to severe boils and infection. Which caused him to waste away to near death. And the pain was so severe that he wished to God that he would die. Notice too, with Job, the variety of his affliction. There was the emotional loss and sorrow in the death of his children and servants. There was the financial loss and the loss in the destruction or confiscation of his material holdings, and there was the personal loss in the deterioration of his own health. Whammy, whammy, whammy. Three things. Boom, boom. Three strikes and you're what? You're out. Add to that the complaints, the misrepresentations, the slanderous accusations of his so-called friends... And he lost his companionship and encouragement in an hour of his greatest need. So this one believer went through all that we experience piecemeal. Some of us are sick. Some are struggling financially. Some are grieving loss over a loved one. But likely we are not wrestling with all these things at one and the same time as did Job. Yet, such suffering, even when it's collectively calculated, adds up to a little while in eternity's scheme of things. Can this be the reason Paul spoke of such as our light and momentary troubles, that's his words, that are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what's seen, not on the here and now, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4:17 and 18. Oh, and one thing more before we move on. Every trial that comes our way has the stamp of God's approval on it. And along with it, God provides a built-in escape route for you to take. Yes, Job was harassed by the evil one. But only as he obtained permission from God to afflict Job. What I'm saying is that the devil has no unilateral control Over the evil he inflicts. He is a servant of God. As much as any other creature of God. His will is not supreme. Though he would like it to be so. He has to come to God. To get it now. Asks permission. Before he acts. And I think knowing this. Helps us as believers. To be comforted in the truth. That behind our trial. Is our God. God. Who is the real agent in control? And that being the case, it should not surprise us to read Paul's declaration: "No temptation." Same word Peter uses when he says trials, verse six, means a testing, a proving. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. First Corinthians 10, verse 13. So along with the trial, which is just for a little while, God provides a way of escape which may account for why the trial is only a little while. Even the great tribulation to come, in which God's people are caught up in the judgment of God upon the wicked. Jesus taught, if the Lord had not cut short those days, No one would survive. But for the sake of the elect. Whom he has chosen. He, God, has shortened those days. Mark 13, verse 20. Even the trials that come our way have. An expiration date on them. That brings us then secondly to. What are the reasons for trials? I mean, why are why any of them? Firstly, it's a necessary part of life. Listen to Peter's phraseology verse 6. In this, the anticipated salvation, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had King James Version says, if need be, you've had had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Well, I think the question which haunts all believers at times is why must we have had to suffer <laughs> the grief of multiple trials? We know we live in a sinful world, we know. The creation has been cursed because of sin. We know that sin brings misery. But in the back of our minds, we are thinking, now wait a minute, now wait a minute. God is sovereignly in control of all of life. Nothing occurs without his permission. Nothing occurs without his foreordination. Lady Luck is not in charge of our world. God is in charge of our world. So... How come Christian people who are loved by God, chosen in Christ to be saved, how are they subjected to all kinds of trial? Why doesn't God tell the devil to take a hike when he wants to tempt us? And why doesn't God intervene for us when things like the economic recession strike Wall Street in our own budget? or companies lay off workers, or hurricanes slam into coastal shores, destroying homes while swine flu infects us all in the wintertime, and on and on we go. Well, you are correct in assuming that God can. (laughs) He can build hedges around his people so that what happens to the wicked doesn't touch the Righteous. We have some of this in biblical history. Remember the plagues in Egypt during the time of the Exodus? What about the plague of flies? God told Pharaoh, On that day I will deal differently. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarm of flies will be there so you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. Exodus eight twenty two twenty three. 23. <laughs> so, Moses was saying, you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring these nasty flies upon all of you Egyptians. You're not going to like it. You're going to hate it. They're going to be everywhere. But Goshen, which is a part of Egypt, where Israel has been consigned to live, no flies are going to be there. Now you can't do that. You can't have flies at this part of Egypt and cross the county line, have no flies over here. Well, God did it. Same occurred with the disease plague of the livestock. Let me read it for you. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Exodus 9, verse 4, verse 6. (laughs) That baffles the human mind. Yet again we read, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over all of Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky. And total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet... All the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Exodus ten, twenty-one through twenty-three. You say, well, how did he do that? I don't know. I just know he did. I think you get the point. God does have—he does have—the power to send trouble. On one group of people. Even people living in close proximity to each other. And yet preserve his people from the same catastrophes. Yet that said and that believed. There are things that occur in life. Heartaches, sorrow, things like that. For which none of us are immune. They're just part of living in a sin-cursed world. Solomon worded it this way. He said, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked. Take your pick. The good and the bad, the clean and the unclean. Those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who refrain from taking oaths." This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2 and 3. Or again he writes, For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered in days to come, Both will be forgotten. (laughs) Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 16. No difference. Solomon also noted a number of conundrums. He writes, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness. And a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 15. That will twist your mind a little bit. Again he writes, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Exodus 8, verse 14. Now you know this to be true. You can be your own little Solomon observer. And Job wrote something very similar. Job wrote, One man dies in full vigor, completely secure and at ease. His body well nourished, his bones rich with marrow. Listen to how he's talking here. One man dies full strength, not sick and scabby the days, all the days of his life, but strong, virile. But he goes on, another man dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side, they lie in the dust and worms cover them both. I know full well what you are thinking, the schemes by which you would wrong me. You say, where now is the great man's house, the tents where wicked men lived? Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts? That the evil man is spared from the day of calamity, that he is delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces his conduct to his face? Who repays him for what he has done? He's carried to the grave, a watch is kept over his tomb. The soil in the valley is sweet to him. All men follow after him, and the countless throng goes along with him. Job 21, verse 23 and following. He's saying, you know, know, wicked people, and it just seems nothing bad happens to them. Even when they die, it looks like the sweet earth is receiving them. It is these discrepancies which make us ill at ease and frustrated with the things God sends into our lives. We cannot comprehend God blessing the wicked while sending heartache upon the righteous. How does that compute? You remember that this was Asaph's dilemma in Psalm 73. He says in his own words, I envied the arrogant when I saw... The prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73 verse 3. They're getting along just peachy keen. Wonderful things are happening to the wicked. And I'm in misery. Yet I say with Eliphaz who advised Job. For hardship does not spring From the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Job 5 verse 7. Our world was cursed because of Adam's sin. And none of that is going to change in our lifetime. Adam's consequences became ours. In that we, like Adam, sin against our God, we reap what we sow. And any suffering of trials that come our way, because of these things, is normative, not unique to God's people. And Asaph finally had to admit that. He started out with all these questions. And then he says, I went into the temple of the Lord and, and God straightened out my thinking when I saw the end of the wicked. In other words, we have something to look forward to and they don't. Now, we may be in the same boat as far as bad things happening to us, going through life, suffering the trials of life, but we end up differently. Our end is different. Secondly, trials come to perfect our faith and our love. Look at verse 7. These have come so that... There's purpose. That's a purpose statement. These have come, these trials have come so that... Your faith, which is of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though if you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, comma, namely, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, verse 7 through 9. He compares faith with gold. Now we think of gold as indestructible. It is, after all, one of the elements on the element chart. You've heard all that from your days in high school. If it's an element of earth, it's found here in raw form, mixed with some debris, dross it's called. But when fire is applied to it, it only seems to make it more pure. Pure. But Peter, twice in our text, says that gold is not indestructible. Verse 7, he speaks of gold that perishes even though refined by fire. Again, verse 18, when talking about our redemption, he says, you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed. James told the rich and greedy of his day, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. James 5 verse 3. In his second letter, Peter wrote, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements—gold is an element—the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Second Peter three verse ten. So there's no fire like God's fire. His wrath burns hotter than a Bunsen burner in the chem lab. The judgment to come is a trial. No earthly element, gold included. Or structure. Nothing will endure. But we will endure. We will endure. God's people will endure. Our faith of greater worth than gold. Will have been tested and tried and tempered. To withstand all that the world, the flesh and the devil. Throw at us. But verse 7. It will be proved genuine. It will result in the praise, the glory and the honor of the appearance of the appearing Christ. The root meaning of the word trial is test or prove. And Peter tells us that this is exactly what the trials accomplish in our lives. It's the proving genuine of your faith and mine, verse 7. I think it's true to say that one never knows... The steadfastness of Christian character until and unless it is tested. A faith that is never called upon to believe when the chips are down, when the world mocks and ridicules, when there seems to be more trouble in one's life than blessings, that is not a proven faith. Anybody can have that kind of faith. Nothing supernatural about it. For all you know, you will renounce Christ like Demas and go back into the world as your first love if if you don't have a proven faith. And that's why James says, consider it, listen to this, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. (laughs) Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, verse 2 through 4. I want to be able to say with Paul at the end of my life, I pray that this is also your desire. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. By the trials of life, God is sharpening your faith, building resolve into it, bravery, love for God. Verse 8 says that we have never seen Jesus, but we love him just the same, as if we had seen him. As if we had been with Peter, walking with him along the shores of Galilee. You don't have to have seen Jesus with your physical eyes to believe in Him. We see through the eye of faith and receive, here and now, the goal of faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Faith brings the faraway Jesus near. Faith takes God at His word and strikes a note in our hearing more clear than the sound waves of an audible voice on our eardrums. I don't think the charismatics understand that. Have you taken a wait and see posture with regard to Jesus? Well, just wait and see. Are you one of those skeptics who says, well, you know, seeing is believing. Hmm, really? May I say that faith is a believing that sees more because it brings with it insight into God and his grace that physical sight misses. Think of it. The throngs, people, people, beheld Jesus time and time again. But what did they see? They saw simply a carpenter's son. That's who they saw. Oh, we know his parents, you know, Joseph and Mary, and uh, we, we know about the trade, he's a carpenter and so on. That's who they saw they never did break through and see Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Savior for themselves. Pretty superficial sight. So I'm saying, if you settle for, well, seeing is believing, if you're settling going to settle for that, you will miss the Savior. And that is one person you cannot afford to miss. You need to come by faith. You need to come now. You need to believe and doubt no more. Seeing by faith, boy, that's the best sight. Our Lord, please give us that kind of sight. We need that kind of sight. we are so attached to this world and the things of it that we value physical sight more than anything else. So if we can't see Jesus, we could be like that faulty disciple that says, until I am able to put my fingers into the nail prints in his hands and thrust my hand into his side where the spear went, I will not believe. Well, there are many people in that category. I call them the show me people. Show me, show me, show me. And I will believe. No, they won't. Faith is the gift of God, repentance is the gift of God. We need to plead with you and we do plead with you now. O oh, Lord, grant us that faith and repentance to see Jesus through the eyes of faith. Come to us and show us the Jesus that his own people in his own day did not see. Oh yeah, we have a handful of disciples that did see. But the majority of the people did not. They were just looking for a miracle worker, someone to give them another free meal. But the bread of heaven to feed their souls, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. Lord, make us better than that. Grant us that faith, which you say is precious, more precious than gold. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. From the red hymnal number 568, as we close, 568, a couple prayer things to keep in mind. Pray for Sabra Loker. She is in Hurley Hospital, having suffered two, two strokes, one on the left, one on the right side of her brain. It's actually miraculous that she can walk and she can talk having suffered strokes on both sides. Pray for Lauren Tan. Lauren underwent surgery to correct problems with her pelvis. They had to restructure the socket so that the femur bone of her leg can fit into the socket properly. And when that heals up on the side they operated on, they're going to break the pelvis on the other side and do that side. So this poor kid, I think she's 18, is six weeks of recovery for the one surgery, and then they're going to do it all over again on the second side for the second surgery. And she said to me, Pastor, I'm not worried. (laughs) I have Jesus on my side. Jesus will take care of me. An 18-year-old. Jesus will take care of me. We need to rejoice in things like that and pray, pray fervently for those that are suffering. And then there's Suzanne. She is coming, she's been in therapy and she's coming out of therapy or maybe she's out by today, I don't know. But Ed has his hands full. Um, she's having difficulty walking, talking thinking straight and all of that going on so don't we have a lot to pray about and concerning ourselves a lot with which to rejoice let's sing together in the hour of trial jesus plead for me five six eight in trinity Jesus said you will have trouble but be of good cheer I have overcome the world let's pray thank you Lord for your grace and goodness to us for taking care of all of our needs whatever our trials may be Peter had it right they're not even to be compared to the glory that's coming it's ours in Christ So I pray that we'll keep our perspective, keeping our eyes on the right goal, not being overcome by looking at things of this earth, but keeping our faith focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as to trials, you went through it all for us. Paid the cost of our sin. Well, I pray that you will bless us. Be with us that are ill. Be with Della tomorrow. She has <clears throat> surgery. Pray that you will watch over her. Be with Lauren. Same thing. Needs your grace in surgery. Healing power. Sabra. Same thing. Boy, Lord, just goes on, doesn't it? I pray that you will be with Suzanne, help her with her memory problems. And Ed, as he tries to work with her. Lord, we keep our focus on you. And we praise you that you are a God that does not desert us. We can trust that to the very end. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: I What are you going to do? Maybe not Not maybe don't